Right now, I am in a place called Cody. It's a historic cowboy town in Wyoming named after Buffalo Bill Cody, who used to do these Wild West shows internationally and was really the person who made the American West world famous. Cody is also close to Yellowstone, which is why we picked it. And can I just say, Yellowstone is my favorite national park so far. All those golden fields full of black bison, the bubbling, vibrant thermal pools and the really colorful canyon, all of it is just mind-meltingly beautiful. Also on the agenda for Wyoming is going to a rodeo show and horseback riding through the mountains. As you can probably tell, we're really leaning into the Wild West theme and I am loving every moment of it. So that's the latest from me. Let's jump into the show. My guest today is one of America's most beloved chefs, Marcus Samuelson. When I first moved to New York and was busy eating my way around the city, his Harlem restaurant Red Rooster was one of the first places recommended to me and it did not disappoint. Marcus is a man of many accolades, so I hope you're sitting comfortably. He's the youngest person ever to receive a three-star review from the New York Times and the winner of multiple James Beard Awards, including one for his PBS show, No Passport Required. He's been a judge on the Food Network's Chopped and authored several books, including a best-selling memoir, Yes Chef, and 2020's The Rise, Black Cooks and the Soul of American Food. When Marcus is not busy running multiple restaurants around the world, including his latest, Bahamas Fish and Chop House in the Bahamas, he also hosts a podcast called This Moment with the Swedish rapper Timbuktu. In this week's episode, Marcus shares a really personal story about a trip to Ethiopia to meet his birth father. We discuss his early experiences of cooking with his adoptive family in Sweden, how the diversity of New York City opened up possibilities for him as a young black chef, and the importance of establishing a connection with our roots, be it a person, a place, or an idea. Well, Marcus, you have been a dream guest of mine since the beginning of this podcast. You have a really incredible life story and you put so much intention and so much heart into everything you do. So I'm just very honored that we're chatting today about travel and food and origin stories. Where are you right now? I'm in my restaurant in Miami, here in Overtown in Miami. Just came out, uh, met my miso guy. He just made a beautiful banana miso that Ooh. I was very excited about. That sounds incredible. you can't incredible. watch the miso because it's all about aging. That's why I was 10 minutes late. <laughs> That's a perfect excuse for a chef being late for a podcast, I think. <laughs> so I normally like to jump in with the question, where did your love of travel originate? Was there a particular figure from your past who opened up the world for you? I think for me, traveling has been part of my existence from the beginning. You know, I think about important travels in my family lives. Like me and my sister, we were born in a village and had tuberculosis and so did my, our mother and she walked us in from the village to Addis the capital and I think about that journey that's our first travel and walking overnight feeding us with probably dried chickpeas not only walking us into the capital finding a hospital so that's one level of travel then getting on a plane coming to, from Ethiopia to Sweden. <laughs> then there have been other travels in my life that's just been game-changing. I remember we lived in the city of Gothenburg, it's a blue-collar town in the west coast of oh, Sweden. 
But every break, every summer, we drove two hours north to my father's fishing village. And just to travel between being a city kid versus a, a fisherman boy in the village. Although it's still Sweden, it's just two hours away from each other. It's night and day in terms of culture and what matters and value proposition. You know, there's so many travels that I've done in my head, like just, you know, going to Japan as an 18-year-old completely changed my life. So there's always been traveling, it's always been connecting to some level of escapism, but also some level of dreaming and then travel more intense and matching ambition and dreams together. And you touched on it then, but you were born in Ethiopia and yeah. the first few years of your life, you had some pretty traumatic things happen. You caught tuberculosis and yeah. so did your mother and sister. And, and sadly, your mother passed away from the disease. Mm -hmm. Can you talk a bit about what happened right after that? We were born with, with our original name, Kassahun Sigai, and Fanta Sigai is my sister's name. And through the adoption, we got changed to Linda and Marcus Samuelson. So there's pretty radical changes. And we went from the warmest country in the world to the coldest country in the world, one of the <laughs> coldest countries in the world. But we got warmth from our parents in a different way, right? And it was contrast, culture contrast, religion contrast, racially. But it was also incredible. We were, we were in a family. We became Swedes. But kind of always traveling and searching for our identity, I would say. And it seems like you had a good relationship with your adoptive parents. How much did you know about your, your past and what happened to you? I, I feel like two or three years old is probably too young to have real memories of, of Ethiopia. But we, did you feel like you were always kind of connected to your past and, and the country? Yeah, I mean, absolutely. First of all, my parents and Marie and Lena, they both passed now. But they were amazing, amazing parents. And they raised us in the best way. They knew how, right? But they knew about love. They knew about sharing. They knew about guiding and leadership. And so they, we, we, my parents did everything they could. I do think when you're as growing up, it's complicated for everybody, right? Not just being adopted is complicated. But we knew that our mother passed, but we didn't know exactly what happened to our father. And that was always something like always sort of tinkering in our backs. What, what if? My sister, in, my, in our 20s, really took that what if to, let's go and meet him. Let's find him. And she worked on it for two years until we did find him. And that, then there was another trip back to Ethiopia. And another journey started where I didn't know I had eight sisters and brothers. And things like oh, that. my so, goodness. Well, we're going to get onto that in a little while. But first, I want to talk a bit more about your adoptive family. So you were close with your grandmother, Helga. And she was somebody who introduced you to cooking. And what were some of those early formative experiences in the kitchen with her that you can remember? I would say love. Just you enter the home of my grandmother, which was like a seven-minute bike ride from my parents' home. Those days I used to do double dinners, you know, because my mom was modern and rushed and her food, she put food on the table. <laughs> Bless her soul. It wasn't great. Uh, but it was, you know, Swedish food. It's called Husmanskost. And then you, me and my sister biked over to grandma's house. And there was food. That was real soul food, Swedish soul food. It, her meatballs was not store-bought. They were made. She grounded the meat herself. She wanted like a liver pate sandwich. She made it. The bread and the liver pate. <laughs> we wanted lingonberries. They didn't come from a jar. 
and there was always a season for something, right? Like mushroom was forged, you know, 45 minutes away. There was always jarring that needs to be done. There was herrings that needed to be pickled. There was apple jams that need to be done. And there was always something. And I just remember running up the 18 stairs up, dropping the bike, running up the stairs. And to the left, once you opened the door, was always my grandfather, like, shouting at the radio of some news that came out. <laughs> and when you walk straight forward, it was just my grandmother kind of, like, singing on some old Swedish song. But there was the fragrance, the smell that came out of that kitchen, right? There was chicken stock or fish stock in the back. A bread always turned upside down that just came out of the oven. Mushrooms or lingonberries on the kitchen table that need to be dried. And maybe there was some old bread that needed to be turned into breadcrumbs. There was always something. That was any night, any afternoon, there was always something like that. And you've said in interviews that being a chef is a job that picks you. So when did you first realize that, you know, your enjoyment of food and interest in food went beyond other people's? You know, you don't, I don't know if I noticed it because I thought everybody, wasn't this what everybody did? Everybody had a grandma. <laughs> so for me, it was very like, it wasn't probably until I came to culinary school where I realized, oh, we're not all here for the same reason. Like, I remember that first day of when we were supposed to start cooking and one of the kids started like food fight. And I was like, whoa, I can't afford to be here. Like I went to cooking school and you're completely wasting my time. Like what's going to happen? I cannot afford to spend one day with you. You know, I just thought like you picked cooking school because you wanted to be at cooking school. The principal, the headmaster was actually really cool she she realized right away it's like Marcus this is not for you you have to kind of we have to figure this out so they did so I didn't have to do cooking with them I did cooking in a restaurant and I had to go back to school to do to like Swedish English math and that saved me because uh, I wasn't allowed to quit school but the teacher's like, You've, you're, you're advanced. Like, you don't need to be here for these things. Okay. So the teachers already saw something in you. They knew that you had a, a special talent that other people maybe didn't have. Yeah. I mean, it wasn't even talent, probably. It was experience. At that point, you're 17. I've already worked for four years in restaurants. I've already traveled to Stockholm for cooking. You know what I mean? And here's like someone trying to throw tomato on another person. I'm like, what is this? I can't be here. <laughs> Yeah. So yeah, you were pretty advanced compared to, to the other kids, it sounds like. So you were you were working in restaurants from when you were a teenager. And then you started traveling all over Europe cooking. Is that right? What were some of those early forays into the culinary world? Well, I went to Japan very early. And then eventually I won a scholarship to get to Switzerland. And although it's in Europe, but it's a big difference to live in Gothenburg than to live in Switzerland. First of all, language barrier, like I had to learn German and French just to navigate. And Switzerland was much stricter than Sweden, which I can really appreciate because it's actually what I needed a lot of discipline. And I also realized in Switzerland that it was like a camp, a cooking camp. Like I was talented and skilled, but I wasn't that talented and skilled. There were other kids just as talented and skilled. And that's something that I, I yeah, it was fascinating to me. And I really enjoyed that. Like, wow. Oh, my God. 
And I've, I've only experienced that in sports before where like you think like, oh, with a shit and then you, you play another team <laughs> and then you realize you're not that cute. And it's like, that <laughs> was a really good smash for me. You yeah. Know? And I didn't even start in the kitchen. I started in the garden. So working in Switzerland in a garden, uh, but it also helped me because once I got on the line in the kitchen, you know, you don't, you look at that vegetable refrigerator a little bit different. You don't waste the blast of anything. You take care of everything because you work in the garden. So you know how long time it took to get the beets, to get the potatoes, to all the things that you need to do. So it's a smart way to really treat humility. Mm, and so, yeah, really build the foundations of cooking from the ground up, literally <laughs> in the garden. Then eventually you moved to New York City for a job at a Swedish restaurant called Aquavit. Was New York always the plan for you or did that happen by chance? And I don't know if things happen by chance. You know, I think there is always something greater that drives you there. You know, you know, one of the blessings of being Black is that you, you are constantly in front of people that don't share your vision and, you, and you're being reminded of it every day, right? And I remember I was in France and I just finished working at a three-star Michelin restaurant and chef's like, okay, go home to Sweden and come back in, th- in two months because you're going to work for me in Nice. And I was 23 at the time. I was like, I can't. He's like, what do you mean you can't? Well, I, I have to start my journey now of opening my own restaurant and I feel like I have to go somewhere else. I don't really know where that is, but I just need to gather myself and didn't know, but I knew that I needed to go my own path. And he just said to me, that's not possible. You have to lower your dreams. I said, well, that's not possible to me. I can't. And he said, do you know any black chef that owns a restaurant like mine? I said, no, I don't. Do you know anyone in Europe that looks like you and wants to open a restaurant like you? And I said, I don't. I said, the whole point is that I don't. He's like, well, that's not going to happen. No one's going to come and support it. So that gave me like something to chew on, to really think about it. I don't necessarily think that he was very racist or anything. I just think that he was matter of fact about what the climate for where we were at that moment in food, you know? Mm. So I just called my dad and he's like, just come back to Sweden, we'll figure it out. And I jumped on the train, 40 hours later, I was in Sweden. (laughs) Gives you a lot of time to think. And he said, do you know anyone in New York? As a matter of fact, I do. One of my cooks, one of my cook friends lives in New York. Do you think you can get a job in New York? And at that point I had a very good resume resume for any 23 year old. I was like, yeah, sure. I getting jobs all over the world. And he said, you should go. Because I just had a black mayor in New York City. And if they support a black mayor, they will support a black-owned restaurant at some point. And I said, okay, off it is, New York. So I don't think that was in the master plan. but Or maybe it was. That was how I got to New York City. Oh, that's so interesting. I mean, it does make sense. that So the diversity of New York made it easier for you to find your feet as a black chef. Yeah. And find like-minded, right? Like I, in New York, I discovered there, you know, obviously we all get fed American pop culture, right? But once you get to New York, you see that there's 
people of color, there are psychiatrists, there are doctors, there are school teachers. Like it's just not Prince or Michael Jackson or athletes, right? They just everybody in between. And when you're a kid growing up in Sweden, you you saw a lot of like sort of like incredible U.S. African American artists that are incredible, of course. But it was very, you know, it was very rarely you saw the middle because obviously that's not the perceived pushed out through pop culture. So it was incredible just to see all the Asian, all the BIPOC people that were in New York City that got on the train and just went to work every day. And that was what Gothenburg or Europe at that moment for me hadn't shown me. Mm. And you can really taste the diversity of New York, you know, as you're traveling around the city and some of the food experiences here can be so transportive. Do you remember any like neighborhood restaurants that really made an impact on you when you first arrived? Chinatown. China, because at that point I've been to Singapore, I've been to China and Asia and Japan. And to be able to go to three different Chinatowns within three subway stops, right? More, more than three subway stops, but, but on the train I can go to three different Chinatowns. In Queens, two, in, in Manhattan, one. And it was incredible. Lemongrass, galanga, those ingredients, kefir lime leaves that I've seen when I was in Asia, that now you find in menus everywhere. But I was like, whoa, this is possible. That was amazing. And then it was all about connectivity. Then I was like, I got to get these ingredients into my restaurant. And I mean, even walking in there and she's like, and I said, oh, can I just, can I pay, can you put me on a monthly, almost like a retainer? So I just pay you. She's like, bring cash every day. No checks. <laughs> <laughs> That's it. She just like, what are you talking about? Checks or, you know, she's like, no, cash every day. Otherwise you get nothing. I was like, great. Now I know how this works. <laughs> That's amazing. <laughs> and it sounds like you, you traveled a load for work, but did you also travel for fun when it comes to food? You know, were there some destinations that you wanted to visit as a tourist just because you wanted to taste all the flavors? Yeah. I mean, I'm sure like the majority of people would do that. But the whole point for me about being a chef that I'm not majority. I think about it in a very different way of eating and experiencing culture is first, then meeting people is second. Right? So I've never said, oh, let's go on vacation to so and so. Like, it's just never done that. It's just not, doesn't mean it's not a good thing. You don't need to do that, but it's just not how I, I travel. I travel for food and then I rest at the market. Are rest by having like fresh conch in the Caribbean or like searching for the funkiest miso like in Japan. So I'm resting in those moments. Relax. I'm relaxed in those moments. I'm actually like I've never been to a beach like to lay down like, oh, it's really nice here. It's <laughs> not how I am at the present. <laughs> Yeah, that makes perfect sense. And while you were establishing yourself in New York, you mentioned this earlier, but your sister has been doing some research into your birth father and Ethiopia. And she suggests that you guys do a trip there. So yeah. how did this reunion trip come about and what was the plan? Yeah, I mean, that's, I think, is also 
beautiful way of how our family is, right? Like we grew up together. She's just very different. And in many ways, she's more normal in her, in her, um, she's much more like, she experienced life in a much uh, broader way than I do in many ways. Like I experienced through food. So at that point, I've never even stopped. And she's like, I think there's a chance that our father's alive. I want to go down that rabbit hole and find it. And she really did. It was two, two and a half years where I was like, well, I'm really busy. I'm working. I don't know what to tell you. And as, as we talked, you know, as siblings does, and she got, she never stopped. And she eventually one day, she's like, I found him. And now you got to come with me. And that's when I got like, you're absolutely right. Stop everything. But I'm so grateful for her because she really did the big brunt of the work. I got to come along on the ride and it opened up a door. So I'm always grateful for my sister, my partner, my, my, you know, my sister to be my partner and like, just be like, we doing this. She, she didn't even give me a, a chance not to. So we did, we went, you know. That must have taken her a lot of research over that two years. Yep. Yep. And, and when she finally did track him down and reached out to him and said, we're thinking about coming to visit you, what was his response? Was he excited? Was he apprehensive after all these years? I did think he know it was all that- emotions, you, you, humanly possible emotions for, all, for all, all both sides. We were mm-hmm. like, how do we know it's him? What's going to happen? Uh, but once I remember pulling up to that village that I was born, once, you know, you, you drive there on the big somewhat highway and then you get off to a rougher road and then you get off to a road where it's just red clay and then you could take a right and there's no road anymore where it's just like cows and chickens and goats running around and the, the housing becomes huts and you're like in this Toyota pickup car, which you find in Africa and parts of the world so often, and you shake and, and you know, and then we saw a whole slew, a lot of people, because this was exciting for the village. And I saw right away, I was like, that's him. I knew, like, in, in the car, I'm like, I knew that was him. I knew that was my father, you know? So, like, you can plan, you can pre-plan as much as you want. Human emotion context, it's going to take over, and it doesn't matter what, how much you plan. So... Whatever emotions I thought I would have changed completely when I saw him. So you mentioned that you you guys had thought that he was dead. What, how did you end up getting separated from him in the first place? Adoption is super complex, right? Mm. Because end of the day, there's one family losing kids and another family getting their house filled with love because they adopted. And then you say, think about that this happened um, almost 50 years ago, right, in the 70s, with clearly no email, not even fax at that point, handwritten notes. You know, it, it just shows you that, you know, like it's just, just not a linear path, you know, you know what I mean? He's giving me, he gave me several different reasons on the why, I, we accepted his why, and we realized it's much better not to dig or, or, or put him in an awkward or bad position because he's already been through a lot. And, or we can actually enjoy this moment and celebrate that we reconnected. And that's what we choose to do. 
Yeah, that must have been an incredible experience. You said you knew it was him instantly. Was that because of the the family resemblance or was it just a feeling that you got when you saw him? I think there was a lot of things. Uh, he was in his late 60s, early 70s at that point. And uh, his walk was probably one of the first things. Like I can tell wow. you that's cool. Uh, his hair, like he had this long gray hair. And I was like, all right, I'm, I'm, I'm going to keep my hair. <laughs> <laughs> you know? And he had this like long, like gray, almost locks. Um, and it was just something there. Like, I just knew. Like, And then that got backed up with evidence and stuff like that. But he was powerful. He was really powerful. It must have been. I mean, yeah, after all those years, what an amazing family reunion. And were there people who lived in the village who had known you and your mother and you when you were kids? Mm-hmm. There were so many people that came up and elderly came up with memories of our mother and memories of that time. But tuberculosis in Ethiopia was real, specifically in that village. And you also have to think about at that point, average age in Ethiopia is 40. At that point, now it's it's higher, maybe for men, maybe in the 50s. But to travel, as you know, it's not to come with your Western ideas and think about how come it doesn't work like this. I'm in the, I'm in the middle of a village in Ethiopia. I'm as far away from Cushit, Sweden or loud New York City as you possibly can get. So you cannot allow the juju and the magic of the place to take over. Otherwise, you can't come in as a Swedish detective want to know whatever is their truth is essentially the truth. Mm. And... Was this your first trip to Ethiopia or had you been before when yeah. you were younger? This is your first trip. Very first trip. I've been to Africa many times, but not to Ethiopia. And so besides obviously connecting with family, was there anything else about the country? The experience just really felt like a homecoming for you. I think so many different things. Like as an adopted, you like you go in and out of this. You don't know like rhythms. I knew... Ethiopia music because I've heard it played in the home or played at events, right? So I knew Ethiopia music, I knew the beats, uh, food, I knew injera bread, I knew berbere, um, and you know. But you're always still to this day like I'm always introduced to new Ethiopian dishes, which I love. So there was something that I knew, and I always feel connect, felt connected to it. But obviously, you're still an outsider looking in. They, there's a word that's used that commonly throughout Africa, Ferenc, like you're foreigner, right? Uh, (laughs) Right, right. And Ferengi, it's used in Asia too, it's used in many different, a version of Ferenc is in so many different countries in the world. Ferengi, Ferenc, it's it's foreigner, essentially. And so how how was it building that relationship with your dad as well? Did you feel like you got the opportunity to really sit down and get to know him during that trip? I mean, I think on the trips coming back, I ended up, going back to Ethiopia every year. So we developed a relationship. Sometimes it was problematic because I wanted my sisters and brothers to be able to go to school and he needed them at the farm. So how do you navigate through this for your birth father? Uh, Making sure that he didn't lose face, but also making sure that this did happen. So it was a lot of back and forth, but I appreciated that because I learned a lot. I, uh, I learned a lot about what it meant to be a farmer in Ethiopia. And suddenly also you you have all these new siblings. Yeah. 
that must have been incredible. We, have- no, it, it, it was. And, and what do we do with that? And how do we support? And how do mm-hmm. we lend our, you know, our experience to them and make sure that they could go, go through to school and they could continue to have a very fruitful, meaningful life. And I can happily report back that everybody went through high school and college, except two, the two eldest did not because they were already too old. That's incredible. And you touched on this already that you knew some Ethiopian dishes before, but was there anything that you discovered, any new flavors, any new ingredients while you were there that shaped your dishes when you came back to the States? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, there is a spiced butter that also is smoked. So it's a smoked butter, beautiful, funky, fermented. Love that. There's a couple of raw beef tartars that are amazing. Uh, high knowledge about fermentation, understanding honey wine. You know, just see things that we, when you say wine, right away you think about what grape. Well, majority of the world makes wine without the grape. Right. So it's all these things that, you know, when you look at lens from just Western, say, Europe and U.S. lens, that's a limited lens. And we constantly are reminded of that. Mm-hmm. And when you travel, you get reminded of it, especially if you go to far in Africa or Asia or deep into South America. Yeah. And your your latest book, The Rise, kind of touches on this a lot. It's all about black excellence in cuisine and the ways that the African diaspora has influenced food in America. So it's kind of about, you know, honoring roots and origins. And I know it was written 20 years after this trip, but, you know, it does seem like there's a connection there. So what have you learned about the importance of knowing your own own story and then sharing that story with others? One great thing about documenting a journey or documenting something is that it is documented. So future and present can go back and say, hey, this happened. And we're going through this in many ways where we where people want to rewrite history because it's, the history was very often written from not from not an equal or democratic you know equal lens, right? So first, documenting black contribution to American cooking was important. Then open have a conversation about black cooking. It's not monolithic, and a lot of people are still doesn't understand what that means. I was like, of course it's not like monolithic. Just like white culture is not monolithic. Someone from Poland. And Portugal did not grow up with the same culture, although they're both from Europe and the name, <laughs> countries of the names are with P, right? But no one needs to explain that. But why do we have to explain that somewhere from Jamaica and Ethiopia and someone that grew up African-American in the States have different experiences when it comes to their food experiences? I'm sure we share a lot, but it's also nuance there. And so the, the fact even that we have to talk about that was clear to me and open it up. And the third layer of the book is also, I want to write books that were not available when I was a kid. When I was a kid, you have to buy, the only books available was French cookbooks. And I remember one day there was a cookbook that I couldn't stop staring at. And it was with this guy that had long hair and he smoked. And although he didn't look like me, I was like, I have to buy this book because I didn't know you could be a chef, you could be 23 and be a chef, executive chef, and have long hair and smoke. Like that was, this was so punk to me. And it was Mark Pierre White's White Heat, right? So you're just like, wow, you can be yourself and a chef. And the fact that he wasn't French was also like a huge deal to me, right? So 
that sometimes you can see yourself in images that doesn't look like yourself at all, but it op opens a door. Another person that opened the door mentally for me was uh, the painter, Jean-Michel Basquiat. The fact there's a young American kid that can just flip upside down on the American and eventually the world's art scene, bringing in the street, street culture, and creating a different visual language. I was like, oh my God, if he can do that. And you constantly challenge with this image as to I like this, what is he writing? I don't understand it. I was like, wow. So this was possibilities, you know? So those are just two examples of, so if you're a young cook today, black cook or not, and you wanna know, first of all, there are other black chefs in your surroundings, here it is. Number two, if you're person of interest or corporation of interest, then you can actually pick up the book and say, hey, I live in Houston. Okay, there's some of correct African-American chef in Houston. Here's the list. Because what I didn't want is for people to say, oh, but I don't know of any, or how do I get in contact with them? That's why we have 200 chefs listed in the back when their Instagram handle. So it's like, listen, it's here. And don't tell me you can't find them. Just do the work. Yeah, it's, it's super important. And the way that you laid out the book was very strategic and very smart as well. So it's awesome. So what, what advice do you have for aspiring chefs when it comes to bringing their own roots and their own culture into their cooking? I think it would be working on parallel paths. And the first path is learn the craft. It's a beautiful craft. And you're just going to be more and more beautiful rabbit holes and you're going to meet more and more incredible people. So just learn the craft because you're never going to get done with that. And that's amazing. Then parallel, make a lot of mistakes, put yourself in a situation where you're going to mess up a lot. And then, but don't arrogantly mess up, mess up in a way that you're truly learning and then take pictures and document that journey because you're going to start to edit out and the craft you're going to get better at. And the mistakes are going to not be the same mistakes. They're going to be different mistakes. So when you move these two things parallel through a long time, it's you're writing your own food truth, and it's very powerful. Solid advice, very solid advice. So to circle back to this trip, how do you imagine that your life would be different now if you hadn't gone back to Ethiopia and got to know your birth father and your roots? Well, I think it changed my life completely, you know, because my life would be as enriched. I wouldn't know my father and my eight sisters and brothers. I'm not sure even I would have met my wife. I didn't meet my wife on this trip, but I definitely thought about Ethiopian culture in a different way in the world. And that means that my son Zion wouldn't have been born. So like, you know, like there's, I can't take this trip out of my existence. It's such a big part of, of who I am today. Mm, I love that. Thank you so much, Marcus. You've been wonderful. Where can people find you on the internet? On the big <laughs> web. Well, uh, Marcus Cooks on my IG is a place to start. And we always tell stories and share what we're doing. So I would say Marcus Cooks. And you have a podcast. Yes. And my podcast, of course, <laughs> this moment. Yeah. Thank you. I mean, you do have a lot of things going on, so I can understand why it's hard to keep track of them all. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I don't even know when this is coming out. Like, I'm excited. Like, we're, 
we're uh, getting ready for the Met Gala where we, all the foods can be plant-based. We're doing that. It's super fun. We've been working on it all summer. And sometime next spring, we're opening our new restaurant in Chelsea in Manhattan. So we're very, very excited about that. So I'm, I'm in training session right now, just cooking a lot of food. Amazing. Well, before you go, I'd love to do a quick fire round with you, travel-related. What is one thing that you believe every person should experience in their lifetime? Travel as far as away from where you grew up. As far as away. The most opposite, the better. <laughs> love that. Um, if you could teleport anywhere just for the day, where would you go and what would you do? If I could go anywhere just for a day, I would go to Ethiopia and I would have dinner with my family. Because of COVID, we haven't been able to go there for two years now almost, 18 months. I miss it. And I miss bringing my son Zion there because it's such a big part of the culture I want him to be around. Mm-hmm. Uh, what is the one thing that you never travel without? Music. Any faves? Flying Family Stone, Prince, Dave Bowie. Like, uh, I haven't written one thing without music. So it's like, it's always in my head. What's the most interesting food you've tried while traveling? Tough question, I know. <laughs> I hope it's for me to discover. Still out there somewhere. I hope, I hope it's in the future. Exactly. Yeah. Um, the most underrated travel destination you've visited? I love traveling to anywhere in Africa, because it, I learned so much, right? As much as I love, you know, when you travel to New York, London, Paris, they're not the same city, but it's, there's a similar vibe to all three. And I love London, Paris, New York, like those, especially New York and London too. But your internet's gonna work in all three places. And I think the whole point about traveling is that your internet's not gonna work. <laughs> and if you go out on the road somewhere in Africa, your internet most of the time might not work, which is a blessing. Because then you have to like look up and just engage. Mm-hmm. You can't be looking on Yelp for the best restaurants. <laughs> and you just have to engage in like human, human connectivity that we all have takes over. And those are muscles that we maybe haven't used in a long time. And isn't that the whole point of traveling? Mm-hmm. Do you have a favorite hotel? I would say two. There's a really old hotel in Ethiopia called Taitu, which sits almost above the city. You stare out and there's always some culture event going on. No matter what, you can just go there. There's going to be a band or it's going to be literature perform there's going to be something going on i have no idea what it will be it's just uh something's going to happen it's always cool uh i love that i love uh saint cecilia in austin it's like this tiny little hotel right off congress in austin it's just cute and beautiful and i love places where you're off the beat but you're also in it so if i stay there i can get to east austin quickly but i can also be in my room and just so much of my day I'm on the road is I come to this place and at night I have to cook and perform like cooking right so I need to gather energy and for a lot of that I do by myself I'm experiencing my own so having a place like Sicilia is perfect because it's like an oasis and no tree there there's a lot of stuff that I like 
you've lived all over the world and you've done a ton of traveling. So where is home for you? Oh, New York City, Harlem. Every time I leave and I come back, I'm like, I live there. I love when people say fuck you in my face. I love when people are just like loud and I love how the city smells disgusting in July and none of that. <laughs> I love it. It's like gives me energy. Yes, I'm here. I'm here for it. It's the best. I agree. Yes. yes. <laughs> and finally, what is uh, one trip you're hoping to take soon? A trip that I'm hope I'm going to do? Yeah. Like what's next on your bucket list? Yeah, I want to I want to take my wife to and my son to Peru. And uh, I just want to eat and show her like certain things and get introduced to new things that I haven't tried and I think that would be a really good trip for us. Some in Lima, some outside, maybe even go to the islands outside. Ooh, good one. All right. I will let you go now. Thank you so much for your time. It was a delight speaking with you. Thank you so much. You definitely have the best uh, British accent that I've heard in a long time. It's so <laughs> proper. It's so proper. I love it. I was probably so making good. it a little more proper because I'm speaking to you when I chat with my friends. I'm like, well, oh. yeah, yeah. Like I'm trying I to be professional. <laughs> I am the proper principal. You're speaking to a chef. Don't forget that. <laughs> All right. Thank you for having me. Have a great weekend. Okay. Thank you. You too. Take care. Thank you for listening to this week's episode. I hope you liked it. We'll be back in two weeks' time with more inspiring travel stories for your ears. In the meantime, you can learn more about us by visiting fulltimetravel.co or following us on Instagram at full underscore time underscore travel. If you have a story you want to share on the trip that changed me, drop us a line. And please be sure to rate, review and follow so we can keep this adventure going.